Well, the story brings us to a wedding. Uh, these were even more common events in the ancient Near East than they are today. Uh, weddings are big affairs. They're big affairs in Australia. I don't know if you know what the average cost of a wedding in Australia is. It's something in the order of $36,000. Quite a lot. Uh, this, today, weddings will normally involve the ceremony itself followed by the more expensive reception. Now, I've conducted, I think, around 50 weddings over the last 10 years or so, and the average number of guests you get at weddings uh, in modern Australia is about 100 guests. Now, that's not very big. I remember once being at uni with a young woman who I met in my course, and as we uh, began talking, I discovered that she'd moved to Australia from Iraq, I think, when she was a child. She was getting married in a few months, and I congratulated her, and I said, are you having a big wedding? And she said, no, it's, it's quite a small one. 500 people are coming. And I said, small? 500 is enormous. And she said, no, no, 500 is not big at all. So my cousin had 2,000. <laughs> now, hopefully that gives you a sense of what, what ancient Near Eastern weddings looked like. They were big and extravagant, not just in the number of guests, but also in the length of time. I mean, wedding receptions here might go for, uh, in today's uh, world, might go for four hours, four or five hours maybe. In Jesus' time, a wedding reception, three days. Three days of celebrating, partying, eating and drinking. And so here they are at, at, toward the end of the three-day-long party and like all good stories, we're immediately confronted with a problem. But it's not the kind of problem that you might expect. I mean, this is a miracle story. And miracle stories don't they always deal with the big problems of human misery, disease and the accompanying social isolation, or the forces of evil, or uncontrolled and threatening forces of nature, or the problem of widespread human hunger, or even death itself? These are the themes that the miracle stories always cover. Well, in this story, the problem's a little different. They run out of booze. Why? Because the guests seem to have drunk more than the hosts expected. Now just stop and think about how strange that is for a second. The, the very first miracle of Jesus confronts the problem not of sickness or of suffering or evil of death or death, but a lack of alcohol. Why? Now before you, you know, book a date with a liquor store on your way home from church, I, I do think that the meaning's far deeper than I've just described it, and we'll go into that. And I don't think the story encourages excessive drinking either, but, but it does challenge us in a way. That Jesus' first miracle was in this context tells us something about God, that he affirms weddings, marriages. He affirms celebrations and parties and even feasting and wine. We Christians have at times over our history, I think, been far more anti-creation than God himself is. Many of us have at times been suspicious of enjoyment of created goods as if they were necessarily drag us away from God. But no, this story tells us that even the Lord encouraged an enjoyment of the created world. But let's focus on the problem of the story. They have no wine, Mary says. She feels for the hosts. This is a serious cultural blunder. You, you need to provide enough for your invited guests. Uh, imagine today having eight friends around for dinner and only serving food for four of them. 
That would be a serious cultural blunder. You couldn't do that. Well, in this time and culture where hospitality was a, was a moral duty, running out of wine was a shameful moment for the hosts. And Mary feels for them. And she tells Jesus, they have no wine. But I think Mary's statement can be understood at a deeper level. Now, why can't the guests drink water or apple juice or something? I mean, it's been three days of drinking wine, but, but they can't. It's, it, it's a wedding, and, and we can't content ourselves with the ordinary. I wonder whether you've ever felt that. We can't live with the thought that the ordinary, the mundane, is all there is, that this is all life looks like, that as life slips away between our fingers like sand, we may fear too much ordinary, Or as we look back, we may regret not doing more, not risking more, not chasing more. They have no wine. It's a statement of longing for the ordinary to be transformed into the extraordinary. A statement that longs for something more, better, something more beautiful. And we slap ourselves for this desire sometimes. I have so much. Why Why would I desire more? There are people around the world who would would beg for a bit more ordinary in their life, a bit of peace. But the problem isn't the desire for more, it's that we try to land that desire on the wrong thing. The longing for something beyond this is absolutely right for everyone, even for those who have a lot like us. The ordinary persists and it longs for transformation. So the story centres around what we would call today a first world problem. The guests who have been drinking wine for three days have now run out, but the problem is symbolic of our widespread and persistent human longing for the transformation of the ordinary in our lives. And so Mary brings this problem to Jesus. And as he does in miracle stories, we expect from him a generous and merciful reply. (laughs) yeah phones do that to me sometimes too don't worry you're right you're right um mary brings this problem to jesus and we expect from him a generous and merciful reply that's that's what he that's what he does when people beg him for his miracles in the stories well this is what he says to mary this is his generous and merciful reply woman what concern is that to you and to me My hour has not yet come. This story is getting weirder. I mean, what kind of reply is that? He he, he addresses his mother with woman. I can't imagine addressing any woman like that. It would be deeply belittling and offensive in our time and language. But that's the clue. There is a translational issue here. Uh, In this time and this language... Woman was likely an endearing term, an affectionate term. Some translations try to go with dear woman to soften it a little, probably unsuccessfully. So woman's not really the problem. The problem is the rest of the statement, and particularly my hour has not yet come. What? She's just telling you they've run out of wine. What is this enigmatic statement? Mary doesn't question it. She simply tells the servants to obey her son. I mean, his reply, I think, suggests that he didn't want to do anything about it. But she seemed to know that despite his reply, he would. And then the story deepens in a subtle way. 
It says that standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, casting a shadow over the room. Uh, We've been living in WA for four years, just on four years now, and I've found it's a big state to explore. We've done our best and really feel like we've only scratched the surface. We've barely touched east of Perth at all, and when I arrived, you know, people said to me, oh, you've got to go and check out some of these towns out there. You've got to have a look at Kalgoorlie and York and New Norcia. And, and the more I heard about New Norcia and its history of, of terrible abuse of Indigenous children, the more I realised that, that should I ever visit, and I, I still would like to, I, I suspect that the beautiful scenery and architecture will have something of a shadow of history hanging over it for me. I'm not sure I could enjoy it fully as if I didn't know the history. Well, our story today is a wedding. It's a celebration, a moment of joy, but, but casting shadows across the room are six vessels that serve as a reminder of human failure before God, of human brokenness, of human moral failings to each other. But they attempt to celebrate regardless. I mean, it's a wedding after all. And yet, those vessels cast a shadow over the married couple as well. Marriage and family life is a little like that too. In the Old Testament, God's described as the husband of Israel repeatedly, but it's a marriage that's not simple. In the end, it's a broken marriage. God knows the pain of betrayal and abandonment, disappointment and divorce. Marriages and families are the source of some of our great joys in life and and also the source of some of our greatest pains. And so these purification vessels cast a shadow over the celebration, reminding us of these things until Christ gives them a command. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they fill them up to the brim. I love how the narrator just moves on after this command like it was nothing. I mean, those poor servants, these vessels together would hold roughly 600 litres of water, and they hadn't invented hoses yet or taps. Those servants would have to walk to the closest well and bucket the water up and carry it back to the vessels and fill it. It was, it was painstaking work, while the hosts would have endured hours of shame and the guests endured hours of the ordinary while longing for something more. And then the miracle moves towards its resolution, but again, told in a very interesting and strange way. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the servant called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. The miracle, actually just, if you you think about that, how that's told, it just passes you by. You, You never really see it. As readers, we don't see it happen. None of the characters in the story see it happen. It sort of happens in secret. The senses are almost completely absent. We don't see it happen, we don't hear it happen, we don't feel it happen or smell it happen, but one character tastes it. This wine, this transformation of the ordinary, this transformation of a symbol of sin and uncleanness into a symbol of abundance and joy. This cannot be seen, it cannot be viewed from the outside, it can only be tasted and deep satisfaction results. 
It must be tasted and it must satisfy completely. The change has come. The ordinary has been transformed. They have no wine has been replaced with, we have 600 litres of some of the best wine in the world. And the vessels, the vessels that cast a shadow of sin, of the need for purification with water, now hold within a different liquid, a liquid of celebration and joy and fellowship. And so Amos chapter 9 is fulfilled, which says, The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who ploughs shall overtake the one who reaps, and the treader of grapes, the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of abundance. The kingdom where a three-day feast will look like a crust of dry bread because of the feast in the kingdom of God. Where abundance will not just be for the rich, for those who are invited to weddings, for those who live in the western suburbs of Perth, for those who already have enough. The abundance will be for all, everywhere, as it ought to be. Sweet wine will drip for them too, because all the hills shall flow with it. One of the little hobbies that's taken off during the lockdowns, particularly over east, has been something called geocaching. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, I've never really done it, but it's essentially where people hide a little package with small treasures in it somewhere out there in the environment. It might be a box with a Rubik's Cube, a muesli bar and a crossword, for example, and then someone unknown to them uses their GPS device to try to find this little cache to take the treasures, to replace them with other ones or or return them after they've had a little play with them. Now, I've never done it, but I, I do smile to know that all around me out there are these little boxes of treasures waiting to be found that I can't see, they're hidden, but they're out there somewhere. And I find John's Gospel like this. You you read a story, you see something of its significance, but there's still so many more little boxes of treasure to find. And while we've been through the narrative of the story, there's more treasures still, and I just want to touch on a couple of them. The first one is, did you notice how this story started? On the third day. Now, you might think nothing of that, but but third from what? Because if if you start reading John's Gospel and you count all the days, we should be at day five, not day three. Why is it saying the third day with no reference point? It seems to be a hint towards Christ's resurrection on the third day. And then we have Jesus' strange statement that I referred to earlier and left unresolved, my hour has not yet come. Well, we get a really similar phrase later in John's Gospel, just before Jesus is arrested, where Jesus says in chapter 12, 23, he says, the hour has come, has now come, for the Son of Man to be glorified, speaking of his crucifixion. So we've got a a reference to his resurrection, a reference to his crucifixion, and then we have wine itself. And and while this, of course, is a a common symbol across countless cultures of joy and celebration, it was also for the early Christians who told and heard these stories something else as well. Wine was a central feature of their worship. As they ate bread that they called the body of Christ and drank wine that they called his blood. The whole story seems to be deliberately confusing the story of Christ, his death and resurrection, with the wine of the new coming kingdom of God. Because they're one and the same. 
Christ is the new wine of the kingdom, the wine that has been saved until now. I'm a school chaplain and I spend a lot of time in my classroom answering questions from students about why they should believe all this seemingly impossible stuff. Miracles, resurrections, the existence of God. And and there's plenty of good answers you can find to those questions. But the more I think about this, the more I realise that really you'll know it when you taste it. I can bring a bottle of wine to a friend's house and tell him that this is the best wine I've ever tasted. And imagine he says, why shouldn't I believe you? And I can go into describing the taste and where it was made and what grapes used and what awards it's won or what reviews it's had. But really the answer to that question, why should I believe you, is, well, taste it and see. When you taste it, you'll know. We know the love of God and the goodness of Christ and the hope of the kingdom by tasting, by meeting Jesus in the scriptures, by asking God to open our hearts and eyes to him. We don't just look from the outside. We've got to taste. Because when you do, you'll see what this story has shown us today, that God wants for you a life of abundance. Life to the full, as John chapter 10 describes it. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It does not mean amassing as many possessions and pleasures as you can. True abundance is found in drinking the wine of Christ, drinking the wine of the blood of Christ. True joy and abundance is found in Jesus himself, the wine of the new creation. True abundance is knowing that the future kingdom of God is sure and is ahead and is for you, the kingdom where no one will want. And it's this hope that means we don't need to chase pleasures in the present in the same way. I mean, enjoy creation, thank God for it, but, but don't build your life around it. And make sure you're generous to others, knowing that there are people just around the corner who, who dream only of having enough because they have so little. We are promised abundance in the kingdom of God, and so we as Christians have every reason to be the most generous to others in our lives, knowing that there are treasures for us in heaven. What else does God want from you? He wants you to replace your guilt with joy. Those water vessels for purification were replaced with the wine of celebration. That is what God wants from you. He wants you to know his forgiveness, his unconditional love. He wants you to stop living under a cloud of guilt and doubt about his love for you. He wants you to taste the joy of forgiveness and the joy of the kingdom. What else does God want from you? He wants you to long for that kingdom, the great marriage feast of all creation where God marries his bride, the church. Long for that day. Live knowing that that is ahead for you and use that to shape your life and and every decision you make. In short, be people of hope, people of joy because it was in that kind of miracle that Christ first revealed his glory. Well, let me finish with a beautiful description of this kingdom that we long for in the words of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, 
the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Amen and amen. Come, Lord Jesus.